Chapter Twenty Eight of Plum Pudding of Diverse Ingredients Discreetly Blended and Seasoned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesling. Plum Pudding of Diverse Ingredients Discreetly Blended and Seasoned by Christopher Morley. Chapter 28. Tadpoles. Near our house, out in the Sylvan Salami's estates, there is a pond. We fear we cannot describe this pond to you in a way to carry conviction. You will think we exaggerate if we tell you with honest warmth how fair the prospect is. Therefore, in sketching the scene, we will be austere, churlish, a miser of adjectives. We will tell you not of sunsparkle by day, where the green and gold of April linger in that small hollow landscape, where the light shines red through the faint bronze veins of young leaves, much as it shines red through the finger joinings of a child's hand held toward the sun. We will tell you not of frog song by night, of those reduplicated whistlings and peepings. We will tell you not of... No, we will be austere. On one side, this pond reflects the white cloudy bravery of fruit trees in flower, veterans of an orchard surviving an old farmhouse that stood on the hilltop long ago. It burned, we believe. Only a rectangle of low stone walls remains. Opposite, the hollow is overlooked by a bumpy hillock fringed with those excellent dark evergreen trees, shall we call them hemlocks, whose flat fronds silhouette against the sky and contribute a feeling of mystery and wilderness. On this little hill are several japonica trees in violent ruddy blossom and clumps of tiger lily blades springing up and blood roots. The region prickles thickly with blackberry brambles and mats of honeysuckle. Across the pond, looking from the waterside meadow where the first violets are, your gaze skips like a flat stone deftly flung from the level amber dimpled with silver of the water through a convenient dip of country where the fields are folded down below the level of the pool. So the eye, skittering across the water, leaps promptly and cleanly to blue ranges by the sound, a couple of miles away. All this mere introduction to the real theme, which is tadpoles. We intended to write a poem about those tadpoles, but Endymion tells us that Louis Untermeyer has already smitten a lute on that topic. We are queasy of trailing such an able poet. Therefore, we celebrate these tadpoles in prose. They deserve a prose as lucid, as limpid, as cool and embracing as the water of their home. Coming back to tadpoles, the friends of our youth, shows us that we have completed a biological cycle of much import. Back to tadpoles in one generation, as the adage might have said. Twenty-five years ago, we ourselves we're making our first acquaintance with these friendly creatures in the immortal, for us, waters of Cobb's Creek, Pennsylvania. Who was Cobb, we wonder? And now our urchins, with furious glee, applaud their sire who wades the still frosty quags of our pond on Sunday mornings to renew their supply of tads. It is considered fair and decent that each batch of tadpoles should live in their prison a milk bottle only one week. The following Sunday they go back to the pond, and a new generation take their places. 
There is some subtle kinship, we think, between children and tadpoles. No childhood is complete until it has watched their sloomy and impassive faces munching against the glass and seen the gradual egress, as the encyclopedia pedantically puts it, of their tender limbs, the growing froggishness of their demeanor. Sometime, when you are exploring in the Britannica, by the way, after you have read about tactics and William Howard Taft, turn to the article on tadpoles and see if you can recognize them as described by the learned G.A.B. An amusing game, we submit, would be to take a number of encyclopedia descriptions of familiar things and see how many of our friends could identify them under their scientific nomenclature. But it is very pleasant to dally about the pond on a mild April morning, while the urchiness mutters among the violets picking blue fistfuls of stalkless heads, the urchin, on a plank at the waterside, studies these weedy shallows which are lively with all manner of mysterious excitement, and probes a waterlogged stump in hope to recapture Br'er Terrapin, who once was ours for a short while. Gissing, the juvenile and too enthusiastic dog, has to be kept away from the pond by repeated sticks thrown as far as possible in another direction. Otherwise, he insists on joining the tadpole search and poking his snout under the water attempts to bark at the same time with much coughing and smother. The tadpoles, once caught, are taken home in a small yellow pail. They seem quite cheerful. They are kept, of course, in their native fluid, which is liberally thickened with the oozy emulsion of moss, mud, and busy animalculae that were dredged up with them in clutches along the bottom of the pond. They lie thoughtful at the bottom of their milk bottle, occasionally flourishing furiously around their prison. But since reading that article in the Britannica, we are more tender toward them. For the learned G.A.B. says, A glandular streak extending from the nostril toward the eye is the lacrimal canal. Is it possible that tadpoles weep? We will look at them again when we go home tonight. We are, in the main, a kind-hearted host. If they show any signs of effusion, End of chapter 28